0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We are in uh, week three, part three of our series on praise and worship this morning. And first week, we looked at the heart of worship, how uh, we looked at two words, and I'm going to start quizzing you next week. By next week, you ought to have them memorized. Uh, the two Greek words for praise, proskuneo and latriuo. The proskuneo being that heart of worship, the adoration, the, the bowing down, the, the, the fear of God, reverence of God. And the latriuo our service, including our worship service. It's our living for God. It's our obedience. It's, it's the lifestyle of worship. But it, it also includes what we refer to as praise and worship. And uh, But that first week, we talked about for this, and this, and the singing, and what we call praise and worship to mean anything, it has to come from that heart of proskuneo, that heart of worship. And uh, our worldview needs to be proskuneo, fear of the Lord, reverence of the Lord. And our actions, how we live that out, are our Latriuo, the serving, the singing, honoring him in all we do. Last week, we looked at it kind of from the other side of the coin, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but that this fear or reverence of the Lord has to be expressed in our Latriuo. It's not enough to say, I have an inner reverence for the Lord. There has to be an expression, and that expression is this, But it's also in our lifestyle. And uh, today, and I'm keeping it short today so we can all go sledding. Never know. This might be the last snow of the year. I don't think it is. I think we have more coming this week. Amen. And my wife just rebuked that. We'll see. By next week, we'll see who has the greater faith in our household. I'm going to talk this morning about whether or not there are specific ways we are supposed to do that. If, as we concluded last week, fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, but we want to mature in wisdom and we want to go beyond just having that inner fear of the Lord. We need to express it. Are there biblically specific ways we are supposed to do that? And I think you probably know the answer to that. There are. All right, praise and worship team. You can come up? No, okay. I can keep it that short. And what I'm addressing here today, I'll be honest. You know, this is the, I, I kind of struggle with this. Uh, this idea that you can't tell someone, you can't tell me, nobody can tell you how to worship, or express their worship. That's dictated by the individual personality. It's dictated by our culture. This is one of the subjects that Zach Nies hits really hard in the book that I've recommended. The the during this service, this How to Worship a King. Uh, has anybody purchased that since this series started? Uh, I really urge you to do that because I don't have time. I'm not going to read that book to you, and I'm not going to preach that book to you. I'll, like I said, I'll share some ideas and some quotes from it, but I'm, uh, I've got this this outline uh, that, that I had and I, I've been blessed by this book. But I also want you to understand that's not the Bible. I'll be honest. I, I believe there are a couple spots I was reading, I was sharing with Beth, uh, uh, just a short passage where I think he really missed the mark. I think he kind of um, really stretched uh, an interpretation of a particular passage. Don't get hung up on that stuff. It doesn't rise to the level of heresy or anything like that. I think he was just trying to shoehorn a particular passage into a point he was trying to make. Uh, but he does make this point that you can't ju- we can't let culture and personal... Uh, personal personality traits dictate how we worship the Lord when God has indeed told us how to worship him. We've got to take that back. We've, uh, he's, he's told us precisely how to offer our praise and worship to him, and to say it doesn't matter what we do as long as we are doing something with a personal heart of worship, that flies in the face of everything Scripture has to say on the subject. Uh, we mentioned last week, in fact, the tabernacle. And I preached a sermon about that years ago. I think the name of the sermon was The Truth About Sockets. And during that sermon, I read at least a chapter, maybe a chapter and a half out of Numbers, I think, where God is describing the construction of the tabernacle. And it is some of the driest, most boring stuff you will read in the Bible next to the begats. Okay? you will get this, many, this much of this type of animal skin, this, this many yards of this much fabric, and you will put sockets and holes exactly this far apart, and you will hang them with hooks made of this, and it will be exactly this high, describing the, just the curtains that enclose the courtyard. Uh, and of course, it gets even more detailed when you talk about exactly what material is to be used for the laver, for the altar, for the, for the table, all the furniture of the tabernacle. And then, of course, even in more detail when he describes uh, the construction of the Ark, of the Covenant. And it was all important. And there's spiritual truths wrapped up in, almost, in, in every bit of that. But the, point I, the simple point I try to make is God didn't just say, go build me a tent. He told them exactly how to do it because he had specific purposes for every piece of furniture and every square yard of real estate in the temple, eventually the temple, but in the tabernacle and in the courtyard of the tabernacle. So, uh, if they had taken the idea, now we can just worship God, as long as we're worshiping it doesn't it doesn't matter how. I want you to think about the period, particularly the period of the judges and under the kings during the monarchy in, in uh, Israel, and then even in, in also of course in the divided kingdom. What was their national sin? You know this. Which sin did they keep falling into? Idolatry. There were these, re- these gods of the nations that surrounded them. You had Dagon, you had Molech, you had Asherah, you had Baal, and they had all these different statues, all these different representations of these gods, and they all had their own rituals, how they worshipped these gods. And the Israelites... Did it too. It was a cultural thing. Now, uh, Asherah, for instance, was a a sexual deity. And worship of Asherah included, I mean, ritual sexual immorality. So you can imagine that was pretty popular with some people. This is a cultural worship. What if Israel had said, well, we're not going to worship Asherah. We're simply going to take the techniques that the people who are worshiping Asherah use, and we're going to do that, but that's how we're going to worship Yahweh. Can't do that, can they? Because those techniques, those rituals themselves are in violation of God's law. Molech, how did they worship Molech? Well, one of the most extreme ways did. They they burned their babies. Maybe they killed them first, but they offered their babies in the fire to Molech. What if they had simply said, well, we're not doing this for Molech, but we like the ritual. It's exciting. It's extreme. It's dedicated. So we're going to do it to God. God would not have accepted that, would he? He told them what to sacrifice, and it wasn't children. It wasn't human beings. So there were specific, it wasn't just you must worship me, it it was you will worship me this way. Got it? Now, let me say this too, uh, so you know that I understand, and I know that you understand. Jesus Jesus had a fascinating conversation with the woman at the well. Look at uh, John chapter 4. Actually, I think I've got this part in here. This is, you remember, he he goes and he talks to her. They're sitting at the well, and he, said, he tells her, uh, you know, hey, where's your husband? Well, uh, uh, I have no husband. He says, yeah, that's right. You've had four husbands. Now you're living with another guy, and he's not your husband. And so he's got her attention. This man knows something. I perceive you're a prophet. So she starts asking him questions. And in verse 19, she says, Sir I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jer- that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship she was a samaritan woman jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem worship the father you worship you worship what you do not know we worship we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I believe what the core of Jesus, the core of what Jesus is saying here is that the location, sorry, the location isn't going to matter. I mean, that's the first thing he's addressing. You know, they were, there were particular, it wasn't just a, how and who it was aware in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying that's, that's not going to matter. But I believe by extension, uh, he's also saying that even the method is going to matter less because the, you know, part of what was Old Testament worship were the animal sacrifices. We know these were going to be done away with, right? It wasn't just a matter of, okay, uh, the, the mountain's not going to matter. You can offer your burnt, burnt offerings anywhere. Jesus is going to do away with the burnt offerings. Why? Because he's going to become the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And so I think maybe there's this, this idea that since he's doing away with the location and doing away with the, some of the particulars, that it isn't going to matter how we worship. And I think we can take that idea too far. Uh, in spirit and in truth. And when he says that, I believe that you can sort of read that as encompassing the proscuneo and the latriuo. Worship in spirit, there's the proscuneo, this inward knowing, fear, reverence of God, and in truth, in actuality, in reality, that's the latriuo, the service. And at the heart of worship, and Nice, I believe, hits this one pretty hard too, at the heart of worship is obedience. The definition that I gave you from Archbishop Temple, I'm not going to read it today, but you remember it starts... Uh, It starts with, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. And true biblical submission, we don't even like that word. We don't like the concept of submission in the United States of America because... We're rebels. It's, that's, that's what's in our blood. It's in our roots. We rebelled against a tyrannical authority. We're not going to submit. We're going to be a free, autonomous people. And there's some good in that and there's some bad in that. Uh, and, and we're seeing more and more of the bad now. With, with individual rights are absolutely the pinnacle of uh, the expression of uh, the, the American ideal of freedom. And so the idea of submitting to anything uh, really doesn't sit well with us. And in particular, particularly in this culture, one of the big hurdles we culturally have to deal with often as we, as we try to uh, model, express, and teach uh, Bible truths on marriage and family is the idea that wives submit to your husbands. I remember having a conversation in my, what class was this? It was not educational psychology. It was some, some uh Oh, multi, it was a multiculturalism class that was a requirement for all education majors at Indiana. And uh, she had a panel come in uh, uh, of uh, three homosexuals to talk to us about their struggles. And this was back in 1996, I think. 1995, 96. And uh, she felt that as teachers, we needed to hear uh, their particular stories and their struggles. And I was, the, I was not listen, there was no way I was going to get into this in the class and start preaching or railing against anything. I'm just taking my notes and learning what I can. And then one of them got up, because there were several questions, and you know, how how have you dealt with some of the difficulties? How have you dealt with this? And one guy says, well, i got to tell you, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, my faith is what has seen me through this. I'm a Christian, and so it was important for me to find a church, find a community of believers. And so then I raised my hand, and I said, listen, I said, I'm not, I'm not, up, I'm not sitting here to judge you or to argue with you, uh, but it's interesting to me because I'm a Christian too. How have you dealt with? Because surely you have. Surely you have encountered those who would say that, well, how can you cling to biblical faith and still? And he's nodding his head and smiling. He goes, yeah, well, uh, that's a great question. and Of course, I get it all. And he wasn't offended by the question at all. It's what he was there for, to answer these questions. So he began to answer with, uh, well, there were, there uh, there's a number of ways to uh, interpret the passages that condemn homosexuality in the Bible. And I'm just kind of saying, yeah, but... He, he says, if... Uh, I understand there are some... He said the, the Old Testament passages like Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they were destroyed for their lack of hospitality. Uh, and, that, and that some of the Old Testament passages, since we live in the New Testament, they really don't apply. And I said, yeah... But, you know, there's some New Testament stuff, too. And, before, and I was—I really wasn't going to drag this out. And, and, but then this girl pipes up and says, Well, the New Testament says women are supposed to submit to men, too. We're not going to do that, are we? Like, come on, you're being ridiculous. Like, she's assuming that I wouldn't agree with that. Because, after all, this is late in the 20th century in America. And she's just showing me how ridiculous the idea of submitting to the whole New Testament was. Now, if... I'd had the chance to respond to her, what I wanted to say, and what I started to say was, hey, I'm not arguing right now whether the Bible is true or false. I'm simply saying, if your starting point is the Bible is true, then we have to embrace that too. I got about half of that out before uh, the moderator, not the teacher, before the teacher stood up, or the, the moderator stood up and said, hey, look, uh, I'm, I don't mean to be disrespectful to your questions and concerns, but uh, experience has taught us that once we get on this topic, we never get off of it. So we're going to move on. I'm like, man, sounds like uh, if that's the case, that's what people are most interested in. Let's keep going. But we didn't. But what got this girl riled up was the idea, women submitting to men. And what, you know, the other thing I would have said was it doesn't say that. It says wives submit to your husbands. Not women submit to men. But the idea in that passage, as you well know, or as you should well know, is not men lording their, their uh, headship over women. It's mutual submission. Marriage, godly, biblical marriage, is mutual submission. It's, it's, it's another way of preferring one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now listen, how can you miss that? Which is the, which is the, which is the greater challenge here? What are you saying? <laughs> I, I, I've got I've to love my wife like Christ loved me? Am I going to lay down my life for my wife and all she's got to do is fix me a sandwich? Mutual submission. It's not a matter of the Bible says it, so I have to do it. Ideally, it should be, I love you so much, so what can I do for you? And I say that daily, and she just says, just keep being you. (laughs) Or something like that. I'll pay more attention this week. (laughs) it's submission is not i'm here god tell me what to do submission to god is i love you and i want to bless you what can i do for you today that is the obedience aspect of worship it's not i love god and he saved me so i got to do what he says it's i love god and he saved me what can i do to please him So, I think there is room for different expressions, different styles, uh, etc., of worship, but what there is not room for is no expression of worship. And that includes our obedience. We cannot say, I love God, but I'm not going to do anything he says, but he knows I love him. That would not work in your marriage, would it? I'm not going to express this. I'm never going to tell you I love you. I'm never going to, sp- I'm never going to speak one of the five love languages to you. No tender touch. No kisses. And uh, Nice does hit this, uh, this one pretty hard in his book too, where, where uh, love, love that's worth knowing or love that's worth having is love worth expressing. It has to be expressed in worship. And the more intimate the relationship in our lives then the more intimate and powerful the expression of this is. Uh, You know, I'm not going to, I love you. And as a pastor, you know, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I like to think that I would take a bullet for any of you. But the way I express my love for you is wildly different from the way I express my love for my wife. You understand that, right? But at the same time, uh, you stand up here real quick, baby. I'm going to kiss my wife. Is that okay? I know it's okay with her. I believe that was appropriate. We're, not, we're, we're kind of different people. Are, are different, uh, we're comfortable with different public displays of affection. And I, I don't want to get graphic here. But I kiss her differently at home. And it wouldn't be appropriate for me to kiss her now in front of you like I kiss her sometimes at home. Remember when I used to kiss you at home like that? Barely. Let's give a, give a, give a hand to my wife here. Great demonstrator. Did you see that? Do I, yeah, anyway. There's not room for no expression of our worship. And, of course, there is no room for expressions of worship that violate the word of God. Here's what you need to know, and here's kind of the core of the message today, and it's real simple. And I will send you a, I did didn't want to go and read all the scriptures. I wanted to keep it short today. I promise you these scriptures are in there. You can just do a word search uh, on your computer, or get your old Strongs out, and look these up. But I can send you uh, multiple scriptures on every one of these. But here are some biblical expressions of worship. Singing. That's a shocker, isn't it? <laughs> Clapping. Now, I want to say this. I've got to be very, very careful here. I don't want to dishonor anybody. There was a teaching that, that was very prominent uh, from a well-known ministry that we still support, we still love, we still honor. That They came down pretty hard on clapping probably, oh my goodness, 25 years ago. The idea that this wasn't a legitimate form of, of praise and, and, and a distinguish, uh kind of a distinction between praise and applause. And, and it struck me even at the time that that wasn't a valid distinction because what is applause if it's not praise? Uh, but to this day, if you go to a meeting at this church, you'll rarely hear anybody clap. What they do between songs and uh, you know, during free worship is they shout, they yell, they sing, and that's good, okay? But you know what? I like clapping. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. You know what I like about clapping? I like clapping during the music because I'm not a musician. I can't really play any instruments except barely and only recreationally. But I can do this. That's my instrument. You know, when we're singing, I can pretty much clap on beat and sing at the same time and sometimes tap my toe. But... Sometimes then I'm thinking too hard and I lose track of the music, so I usually keep it to clapping and singing. I like it because it fills the room with sound. I like clapping at the end of songs and between songs because it fills the room with sound. It's something I'm I'm using my body as an instrument there. Don't be afraid of clapping. Don't think it's not spiritual enough. Well, we're a Holy Ghost church. We don't clap, we shout. What are we doing when we do that? We are getting into legalism, all right? Singing, clapping, raising hands. This was the defining worship characteristic of the charismatic movement. I'm not, I'm not saying that to be funny in any way. That just was. That, was. that was the big difference. Because I can remember in the old Singspirations at the Methodist Church, those uh, radical Sunday night ones where we did the modern songs, we would clap during some of those. Never on Sunday mornings, but we would clap during the Singspirations. So clapping wasn't all that radical. But man, the first time I was in a service where people were doing this, I knew I was somewhere different. When I was in high school, uh, big bullies like Todd Duckwitz and his gang, not really probably him, but some, uh, some other people in our class. I've told you this story before. It, it was a weird thing to see. When we were meeting at the high school in Ogden, uh, were, I would have classmates uh, who would be waiting at the end of church to get in to play basketball. And maybe our service is running over. And if our service is running over, usually it's because we've got maybe a little extended praise and worship at the end. And there's my classmates peeking in the doors, and we're all going like this. And the next day, Monday, I'm walking down the halls, and my classmates are going, "Woo!" They'd be going, "Look, what am I doing? I'm holding hands with Jesus. They thought that's what our, that, that was their doctrinal explanation. This is how we hold hands with Jesus. And it was just an expression of praise. Because, and why was that? They weren't really mean. And I, I honestly, again, I believe, you've heard me say, share this before, I believe God protected me a lot because I never really felt persecuted. I look back and think, man, that was kind of rough. But it didn't feel all that rough at the time. Uh, and, and, they, and they weren't beating me up for it, for crying out loud. They were just making fun of something they didn't understand. Because this was something that just didn't happen. Now, you can go into a Church of Christ and a Methodist church today and see people raising their hands. It's become a little mainstream, right? Uh, but the Bible tells us to do that, lifting up holy hands, singing, clapping, raising hands, shouting, shouting. This is something i got to be honest, I would not mind hearing a lot more of in this church. Hallelujah, but not during my message. No. <laughs> is that you, Jerry? <laughs> this, in fact, that's a great illustration. Because when we're, uh, here's when I notice it. This is just me. This isn't a doctrine or anything. This is when I notice it. In between songs. If we sing four songs on a Sunday morning and we can get fired up, charged up, and we're in the middle of a song and it's right there, and there's a transition time, I would love to hear voices from the congregation. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Amen. And if you know, well, I I would like to involve my voice during this time. I don't know what to say. Guess what? That's why God gave you a prayer language. Just praise him in tongues. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. And just keep it going. And again, not to be legalistic, but just to keep this, just to keep praising. It's a matter then of me not just reading words up there. I am praising from my heart. And why don't we do it? I think ultimately it's because we're self-conscious. But if everybody did it, we wouldn't be self-conscious, would we? That's why it's easier to raise your hands in a church like this than it is. In a Catholic church or a Methodist church. And I'm painting with a broad brush. I know there are charismatic Catholics and charismatic Methodists. Dancing. Ooh, now. Hang on a so second. Let me go back to shouting a second. I'll get it done, Dan. I'm not, we'll talk about dancing. The shouting thing. Here's where we have to, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more today and maybe some more next week. There really comes a time when you have to consider this isn't a matter of bowing to culture, you understand. But there is always the recognition that this is corporate worship. And what we do as a body, in a sense, takes precedence over what you as an individual can do. What am I saying? We had a gentleman in here years ago for a week or two of what we, what we call Holy Ghost services, where he would teach for a while every night. And then there would be a prayer line where people were getting hands laid on him. And it was wild. People were experiencing spiritual drunkenness. There's no other way to describe it. People who could not stand because of the the physical, tangible manifestation of the Spirit. Uh, People would laugh uncontrollably. Bodies on the floor. It was a full-on holy roller service. Not, I got to tell you, has never, I'm maybe the most reluctant or cautious charismatic in the world. This was not something that was my cup of tea, but I went every night and I sang my heart out every night and I was at every altar call because I did not want to be resisting the move of God. And I enjoyed the meetings. I really did. They were wonderful. But there were people who were familiar with this speaker from other churches who wanted to come hear him. And they were scattered throughout our congregation. And I remember one woman in particular throughout, not during Hey, man, w- w- during the song service, when he's praying for people, it was practically anything goes. As long as you keep your clothes on, it would, people are going nuts. But during, he was a good teacher, and he would share some things leading up to that, and in the middle of it, this, this I don't know how to describe it other than it's k- kind of like, like a rooster crowing or something. It just, every now and then, it's just sort of punctuated, screeching and it was jarring because you'd be listening to him all of a sudden you would go like that and he had given specific instructions don't shut anything like that down he kind of encouraged it and I got to tell you that's where I would disagree I love an amen Amen. or a hallelujah, hallelujah as much as any pastor does I love the feedback did anybody see the news article it was just a few weeks ago and I wish I, uh, I wish I'd have thought of this before. Now I'd have looked it up. There's some some team, some basketball team. They have a fan section, kind of like the Orange Crush, all right. And it was this. And this woman has been a part of this fan section for years. And her signature cheer is this. I think they called it the screech. They call her the screecher, or the screamer, or something. And you can go to YouTube, and it's like, especially during the when an opponent is shooting a free throw, and you hear people going whoa 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 whoa, and then you hear this. Trying to distract. And she's doing this as part of her contribution to helping her team. She's trying to be a distraction. And it's like, hey, man, this is what we want, right? We want noise in the stands. You know, you see the athletes sometimes going like this. Come on, help us. Cheer us on. Give us your energy. And this woman, this was her. Ah! The college and the team confronted her and said, stop doing that. You're not helping anybody. You're distracting people. You're drawing attention to yourself. There comes a time when your individual expression of worship might be a genuine, legitimate distraction from the corporate expression. Now, and this is a balancing act because biblically, well, uh, if you want to dance, there's a lot in the Bible about dancing before the Lord. And while I might say something that is so inspiring, I would urge you not to get up and dance around this room while I'm preaching. Why? Because I'm trying to limit your expression? No, because if I'm saying something important, which I believe I am because I still believe I get these words from God, these messages from God, I guarantee you, if you and your excitement decide to express your excitement by dancing around the room while I'm teaching, they're not going to hear what I'm teaching. And there is a line also, even during the praise and worship service, where a person's individual, I saw, this is one of the things I always admired about my dad. He would do the hard things, confronting people. Uh, still, I still admire about my dad. I'm talking about when he was active here pastoring, even during some of these crazy meetings, he knew when to... He would address things right up. I can remember one guy, he was a young believer and he was getting free from something and he started to jump and scream and shout and it was exciting, but then it started to get really into to where, you know, here we are during the middle of this service, there's people being prayed for and there's people singing and all of a sudden every eye in the place is like, how bad is it going to get? How crazy is it going to get? And dad just went over and put his arms around the guy, hugged him and whispered in his ear and the guy just continued to praise the Lord, just brought it down a little bit of a notch. Was dad quenching the spirit? I don't believe he was. But if we are in the midst of corporate worship and we're singing a song, it's energetic. And you know, you know, I don't like to, oh, God was really in that song. You know what? God's here, right? But he does. He's enthroned. He inhabits the praises of his people. I believe there is a special manifestation of his presence when we as one sing from a heart of worship. And if we are going at it and we are singing and the energy is high and somebody wants to step out in the aisle and dance a little bit, let them and join them. Don't say, oh, what are they doing? What are they doing? I can't. That, we, this is where I, I really agree with, with, with Zach Nies about this. We've got to make room for these biblical expressions of worship at the right time. And just because you don't consider yourself a dancer doesn't mean God didn't say dance. Just because you're not a clapper doesn't mean God didn't say clap. Here's where I, I might, I'll throw these other two out here real quick here. Bowing is another one. We're singing a reverence song. We might even be singing about bowing. Why not bow? That is a biblical expression of deep worship. Proskuneo. That's, that's what it means. This prostration, this bowing, our face to the ground. And the other one is playing instruments. Uh, it amazes me that there are denominations that flat, do not allow musical instruments when our p- biblical praise book, the Psalms, tell us. They don't just say praise instruments. They say praise them on this. They list the instruments. Let me, let me uh, go back to this to, to kind of prep this point I started to make. Here, here's, the, here's the point that Zach Neese makes. Uh, his position in a nutshell is this. We have allowed culture to dictate how we worship because we're too reserved or too embarrassed or self-conscious or whatever. And we don't allow ourselves to offer anything more exuberant to God than a quietly sung song. Forget bowing, forget dancing. Those are too distracting or they're too uncouth. But God says dance. God says bow. God says shout. Now what are you going to do? Say, no, thank you, God, I'll do it my way. True worship is obedience. And these are the things God has told us to do. We have, have to stop allowing culture to tell us what to do, stop allowing our individual personality to tell us what to do, and let the Bible tell us what to do. That's not a quote from Zach Neese. that's that's, in, that's what he says in a nutshell. And I agree with that almost completely. There's one problem with that. One of the commands is praise him with loud instruments. Do you know where I'm going with this? I do not want you showing up next week with a trumpet. (laughs) I don't want you hauling in your own keyboard. I'm serious. We can only take this so far. Let let everything be done decently and in order. What are you laughing at? The trumpet? (laughs) There was a guy. You know where I'm going with this, don't you, Elise? This guy, he uh, was a great guy. He had a heart for, heart for God, uh, but an interesting individual. This was years ago in the Methodist church. Who, uh, he, he said, if I'm remembering his story right, he always he loved the trumpet. He always wanted to play the trumpet, and they could never afford one. So he would do this during songs. And his face would swell up, and he would like this. I can't begin to do it, but it sounded exactly like a trumpet. And it was on tune. It was beautiful. But it was weird. If you looked at him, his whole face was red and it was, you know, it was full, it was tight, full of air. And uh, if it was the first time, if it's your first time hearing it, it was a little jarring. We kind of got used to it. It would be a certain song playing. All of a sudden you'd hear this beautiful trumpet. And you'd turn around. There he is. He's just, he's just going to town on his mouth trumpet. It was, it was beautiful. Uh, and if you've got a talent... Uh, if you can play something well, and again, man, if you can sing, sing your heart out. If you can clap, clap. If you can dance, dance. But, again, with, and if you're at home and you want to play your heart out on your guitar, or your ukulele, or your tambourine, or your cymbals, or your drum, whatever, I encourage you to do that. But to make it part of the corporate expression, we have to find that line sometimes where, where is it a distraction? Where is it appropriate? And it's going to take, sometimes we're going to miss it. You know, we talk about shouting and the whole congregation shouting, that's fine. Some people uh, are more comfortable with that. Some people like, well, it, here's what I'm saying. Just because you're not comfortable with that, don't let that keep you from obeying God. But if you are comfortable with that, don't let your, the things that you like doing interfere or detract from the corporate expression. Ravi Zacharias, and this isn't just about these things. Ravi Zacharias tells a story. We have to walk in grace and submission, all right? Uh, Ravi Zacharias tells a story talking about the corporate environment of worship and said they were getting ready to speak and during the offering, uh, a woman got up to sing a special and said she could really sing and it was a beautiful song. But because of what she was wearing or barely wearing, it was a real, it was a very awkward moment. He said, you he he just began to be aware that all the, you know, there were a lot of speakers and, and stuff on the platform. And we all were just kind of looking down at the ground because we couldn't, we couldn't bring ourselves to continue. You know, either close your eyes or look at the ground because to look at this woman, uh, it, you, you felt like you were sinning. And this was just her clothing as she offered this song to God was a distraction from the corporate environment of worship. So within the confines of, or within the confines, the guardrails of Scripture, okay, we can bow, we can sing, we can shout, we can dance, we can clap, we can raise our hands without fear, should be able to do all these things without fear of distracting one another, calling attention to ourselves. And when the music's loud, shout. Between songs, shout. Clap your hands, dance. When we're in a moment of holy reverence right in the middle of a song, bow. Don't worry. Say, well, if anybody notices me, it's a distraction. It's a momentary distraction. It won't won't pull away from the corporate worship. Again, don't shout and dance while I'm in the middle of a scripture reading. And then there's some who will say, well, you really shouldn't dance unless it's the Holy Spirit taking over didn't say anything about that in the Bible. Mark Hankin said a dance isn't something the Holy Spirit gives you. It's something that you give God. Jack Hayford tells a wonderful story. Jack Hayford is a very conservative, reserved guy with a thoroughly charismatic Holy Ghost heart. And he was talking about worshiping God in his study. He said he was just meditating on the scriptures. He was singing. And then he got up and he, and he, and he stood up and he began to Right there, all alone in his study, he raised his hands, and then he heard God speak to him: "Dance for me." By himself in his study, he said, "I just began to." And here's Jack Hayford. You can picture Jack Hayford. He's an older guy, very dignified, uh, square, you know. And he's just I just began to think. And Jack Hayford's written hymns, written written praise and worship songs. Friend of mine, dear friend of mine, ultra conservative pastor. Before he became a friend of mine, I would have described this man as the most joyless, legalistic, narrow individual. And then I got to know him, and he is just a man who is, he loves Jesus. He is happy. He is fulfilled in his faith, and he has an active prayer life. He's got a prayer closet, and he's told me, this guy... You would never, ever guess it from his church or his conversation. But he's told me when he goes uh, into his prayer closet, he raises his hands. And this, when he told me that, I'm like, you? You're a hand. He's like, yeah, I'll get in there and I'll just I'll sway and sing and tears running down my face. He does this privately. And maybe that's another clue. If, we're not, if this isn't something that's in our heart to do outside of church, Maybe we can question what's my motive for doing it inside the church. If, if you know, because some people are a little more into it, we li- folks. We've lived through it all. Well, I don't say we lived through it all. We've lived. If you, you can think about a scenario that the, uh, this church has probably experienced it at at some season in our existence, and we've seen people who are who get the the what I call the look at me bug, and uh, I can do anything that's going to get attention on myself. But we walk in grace, just because somebody. Man, they have a genuine explosion of emotion during a praise and worship service. Don't you dare assume they're doing that to get your attention. Okay, we walk in grace and we walk in submission. If you're the kind of person who maybe you're driving down the road and I've experienced this, you're listening to a teaching, you've got some music on the radio, something you hear or something you're praying about. Something just drops. You just God speaks to you, teaches you something. What do you do? You're all by yourself in the car. I've never I can't tell you how many times I've been driving long road trips and I'm just playing podcasts or I'm listening to teachers, listening to music, and I'll just I'll start singing, or I'll just yell, Yes! Oh, thank you, Jesus. That's beautiful. Why? Who am I doing that for? There's nobody else in the car for me, the car but me. So two sides of that. One because I can express it like that, I'm comfortable expressing it here, because I know it's—I'm not being hypocritical. On the other hand, if I'm comfortable doing that in the car, I sure ought to be able to do it here in the presence of other believers. And that's where some of you y'all know, well, yeah, do it in the car. I'm just not going to do it in front of you. No, do it in front of us. Do it with us. I, it, we're, we're, a, we're a charismatic Holy Ghost church, and we ought to be a little louder. And I know. I'm just—I tell you this. I struggle with this as much or more than uh, many of you. How would I wrap this up? I would wrap it up this way. Let all things be done decently and in order, but let all things be done. Let all things be done decently and in order, but let all things be done. There are so many critics of the charismatic movement, Gifts of the Spirit, who are not criticizing the doctrine of the gifts, they're cessationists, okay? They don't believe in the gifts. But what they'll say is, here's the reason, uh, whether they'll come out and say it or not, you can. sometimes you read between the lines, sometimes it's right there in the lines. Uh, what really, uh, the, the true distinctive of modern charismatic churches is that they are a free for all. There's no order. There's all the wildness. And, and Lord knows, we've been there too. Uh, things go a little crazy. I have seen people walk into meetings and turn right around and walk out right here in this building and other places too. Things are a little bit too crazy. And Paul talked about that. Well, somebody comes in, uh, into your assembly and you're all talking in tongues at once, isn't he going to think you're insane? Prophesy to him. So people will say, well, this is, this is the distinctive of a charismatic movement, charismatic church. If it's, it's, there's, no, there's no order. There's no self-control. Fruit of the Spirit, self-control, right? Well... This is why we've got to say, no. There is nothing unself-controlled. There's nothing wild. There's nothing undisciplined or out of order about tongues, interpretation, prophecy, miracles, dancing, bowing, raising your hands, any of these things. All of those things should be done. But let those things be done decently and in order. Okay? Stand up with me. This is where it's going to be a little bit, I don't know, maybe we're in kind of a transition in our praise and worship as a church. I think that's good, as long as that transition is moving the right direction. Last week I did something that I hope you weren't offended by. Uh, I never want to treat you like you're like you're stupid or like you're babies, but you remember last week we finished and I said, let's smile. I want you to practice smiling. I got to make you smile and I'm not going to point fingers in front of everybody. I might tell you individually, hey man, get a smile on your face. Especially to the leadership. But I did that just as an exercise. I wanted you to experience that you really do feel different when you're singing with a smile on your face that suddenly it really does become more of a genuine expression. Hey, Wow, when I smile, when I look happy, I feel happy. I don't have to wait till I feel happy to look happy. And I think God likes to hear these things with a smile on our face. <laughs> but I told you to do it. But I told you to do it so you could experience it, so I wouldn't have to tell you this week. So what are we going to here? I need you more. This is a worship song. This is a slow song, what we would call a worship song. It's more of a contemplated, slow song. So probably not the time to come out and dance. Or shout. You know what's time for? It's time to raise your hands. Might be time to bow. And I'm asking you once again. It's not my Scott. It's not my heart. I don't want to fake it. I'm asking you to do it out of obedience to the Word, and I'm asking you to do it to stretch yourself, even if it's not normally your expression. I want you to just experience this. Experience doing something that's a little out of your comfort zone. When we sing this song at some point, would you raise your hands to? You might find out that that's a you know what that's a pretty good posture of worship. What does this mean? To me, it's all, the first thing I think of when I raise my hands is it's surrender. Or if I'm raising one hand, what I'm doing, I'm identifying with what I'm singing. This is not exclusive to Christian gatherings, by the way. You see this in rock concerts. I think they stole it from us. But it's one more way. It's one way just to involve another part of my body as I offer my whole self to God, who deserves my whole self, right? Now, while we're singing this, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to something. What we're going to hit, focus on next week is really the whole idea of access to God, that none of this is even available to us. It's something that I mention almost every time when I'm praying over our communion. That it's the blood that even enables us to stand in God's presence. So we're talking about the cross of Christ and his blood. All this stuff, the physical posture and the particular expressions of our worship are, not, are, are absolutely meaningless if they're coming from a person who is not born again, who is not saved, who is not a believer. It starts with belief. Start when belief starts with conversion. Okay? You believe, then you're converted, and then there's, there's growth in Christ, growth in grace. The maturing process. If you've never given your heart to Christ, if you've never submitted to his lordship, if you've never looked to the cross and realized, really realized and believed that the the death that Jesus died, he died because somebody had to. You were either going to die in your sins or he was going to die for your sins. But the only payment for your sin, for my sin, for the sin of the world, is death. And Jesus... God in the flesh died that death, paid that price for everybody who would believe. And when you decide that was for me, I need that. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe not only did he die for me, he rose from the dead. That's salvation. That's what you have to believe to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from hell but you're also saved for. You are saved unto, into the family of God, into a relationship with your creator. And this is what we celebrate and recognize during praise and worship, during the singing, the bowing, the raising of hands. What are we doing? We are simply expressing our intimate love for our Savior, for our God, for our Father. So I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to invite you, if you want to make that decision today, do it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait till the second or third verse. We might only do one or two verses, all right? If you need to be saved, you know it. You're going to know it after I pray this prayer. And then I want you to come up here and give your life to Christ. Everybody else, use this time to practice and just participate in heartfelt worship and praise to our God. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ.